This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. So, in any kind of layered food, you want to think about what is the order of the layers as they hit your tongue. Because whatever is on the bottom layers, if it's going to land on your tongue, that flavor will be accentuated. That's why, for instance, I would say you should eat a cheeseburger with the cheese side down. When you're eating a salad, you want to fork around the salad and build a bite on the fork, ending with the thing you like the best, so that that's on the tip of the fork, it lands on your tongue, and that flavor is accentuated. Welcome to Homemade from All Recipes. I'm Marty Duncan. On this show, we celebrate the stories behind the food we love to cook and eat. And sometimes that starts with what we're doing wrong. Popcorn. It's a classic snack and one of the greatest butter delivery systems in human history. But too often you end up with big globs of butter in some parts of your popcorn and nothing in the rest of it. I'm going to show you how to get the perfect ratio of butter to popcorn in every bite. You can find Dan Pashman's video series, You're Eating It Wrong, on the Cooking Channel. But what he's best known for is being the creator and host of the James Beard Foundation award-winning podcast, The Sporkful, which is immensely popular. He likes to say it's not a show for foodies, it's a show for eaters. And that's something I can really get behind because if I'm anything, I'm an eater. Dan Pashman, welcome to Homemade. We are so happy you're here. Thanks, Marty. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've done a lot of podcasts. And I think the one that intrigued me the most, I hate to say this, as a snackaholic was the potato chip one. So right off the bat, I just want to ask you, does the louder a chip crunches actually mean it's a better chip? This is a deep philosophical question you're asking here, Marty. So yes, there's a researcher in England named Charles Spence. He's done a bunch of research along these lines of the way that our senses contribute to taste perception. One of his most famous experiments was that he had people sit in front of a microphone. The microphone is connected to headphones that they're wearing, and they would eat a potato chip into the microphone, and they would hear the crunch of the chip in their ears. But because it's going through headphones, Spence could adjust the volume. So some chips they would eat would have a very loud crunch, other chips, softer crunch. Thing is, he was giving them Pringles. Every single one was identical, oh. right? So it's the same chips. The only difference was how loud it sounded in their ears, loud crunch or quiet crunch. And then he asked people to rate which chips were better, which ones were fresher, crunchier, better. And people said that ones with the louder crunch were fresher and better even though they were actually the same chips, identical <laughs> chips. Now, some people would hear that and say, oh, well, so they got fooled. But other people would say, no, because like if you perceived that one was better, I mean, what is how something tastes to you, but how you perceive it? It's all perception. So if you perceive that it's better, then that makes it better. Whatever tricks got played to make you think that, it's at the end of the day, if you got more enjoyment from it, then it's better. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a problem with that. Interestingly, the same research holds with the sounds that the bag makes. That's why potato chip bags tend to be loud and crinkly. It's not about freshness. When it's a food that we think is supposed to be a loud food, the louder the potato chip package, the fresher we will think that the chips are. That's interesting, too. And I buy those sometimes, those ones that are kettle cooked thinking... 
they're going to be crisper and crunchier because I think the crunch factor has a lot to do with it. All right. So, Dan, we know you know everything about food, but we want to know more about you. Mm-hmm. How did you get here? What was your journey to food? Yeah, I mean, I I always loved to eat. Ever since I was a kid, I loved food. Food is a big thing in my family. We love to go out to eat. Every holiday, every vacation was pretty much like just sitting around waiting to eat. You might be Southern because we do that. Right. When you're eating breakfast, you're planning lunch and dinner. Exactly. Where are we going for dinner? Where are we going for yeah. dinner? <laughs> That's exactly right. But yeah, my background was in radio. When I graduated from college about 20 years ago, my dream was to host my own radio show. Long story short, I kept getting jobs at radio stations, working on different radio shows, and I would think, oh, here's a great place for me. I'm going to work my butt off. I'm going to work my way up. And maybe in 10 years, I'll have my own show. Problem was, you know, it's already a tumultuous industry. On top of that, the internet and technology were kind of throwing the radio world upside down. There were a couple of major recessions in the time I was coming up. The shows I kept working on kept getting canceled. I got laid off from like six jobs in eight years. I get it, 100%. Yeah. But how did you get to food? Was that just because of your podcast? Around this time, like 10 years ago, friends of mine from radio were starting podcasts. I said, maybe this is what I should get into. But what should my podcast be? At that time, you know, like you know, I'm a big sports fan. I had done a lot of work in news and politics in radio, but I didn't really think that the world needed another guy with opinions about news and politics or you know, who the Yankees should be trading or whatever. There's enough of those folks out there. And I thought, well, what about food? You know, I love to eat, and I feel like I have this sort of idiosyncratic approach to food. I'm very obsessed with all the little details. I love to sort of build sandwiches and study how they fall apart or don't, or how can I layer them to get the best taste? Not from a chef perspective. It wasn't about, like, finding the fanciest ingredients. It was just, like, egg and cheese sandwich, like, English muffin or grilled white bread? And like, do you put the cheese on both sides or only on the bottom, scrambled egg or fried egg? Obsessing about these tiny details was something I love to do. And I was like, maybe that's a show. And in the early days, that was the show. We, our second episode, we spent 20 minutes discussing ice cubes. I mean, I didn't even know what a podcast was about two years ago, much <laughs> less 10 years ago. Yeah, it's been a big explosion. Yeah, it really has. And I feel very fortunate to be hosting this one with my favorite people from All Recipes. But let me ask you, so we're, we know a little bit about the podcast. We're learning a little bit about you. But I want to dig a little deeper and get to the personal stuff. So you're, you're married. You live in New York. You have two kids. Right? Yeah, I live. And y'all are a cooking family. We do love to cook. I love to cook with my kids. Um, sometimes that can be wearing on your patience, but <laughs> yes. But it is a lot of fun. But it's so important to teach them to cook because then they can always feed themselves, number yeah. one. And secondly, <laughs> it just makes memories. So you've had this podcast for 10 years now. How in the world do you decide what you're going to talk about, who you're going to talk to, and how do you prepare? I'm fortunate enough now to have a couple of producers that I work with, and so we work together to come up with the ideas. Sometimes it's one person's idea. Sometimes it's a group idea. You know, often the best ideas are the ones where one person says, hey, how about this? And another person says, you know, yes, and also this, or what if we add this? Or everyone contributes. I think that... Good ideas are all around you all the time. Whatever your job is, there's a million ideas. There's no shortage of ideas. There are stories everywhere. Interesting things happen every day. It's just a question of a combination of having the professional experience of noticing. When you have worked in this kind of field for a long time, it's like a conversation that anyone might have with a friend that may just pass by as like, oh, that was an interesting conversation. I'm more likely to be like, oh, 
this is an idea. This is a show because I've been doing it long enough that I'm sort of always trained to be on the lookout for like what what's a kernel of something. I see. An example of that is like, um, so for our 10th anniversary, we had listeners voted and the number one vote getter for an episode for us to re-release with a brand new update was this show we did called Searching for the Aleppo Sandwich. And that started when I ran into an old friend of mine, Adam Davidson. He started telling me this story about this sandwich shop in Syria, this amazing sandwich shop. He had been there before the war in Syria. And I was just like, this is a show. Like, I wanna know what made the sandwich shop special, what was in those sandwiches, and is it still there? Are the owners alive or dead? And we set out on, on this quest and we spent like two years trying to find out what happened. And it's one of our most popular episodes ever. We told this like hour long, two part story that I was very proud of. And now we just recently posted an update because that was three years ago that that story came out. That's an example of just like a casual conversation with a friend turning into like one of our biggest episodes ever. You say that you can learn a lot about someone by asking, what do you like to eat and how do you like to eat it? You can learn everything about a person from asking those questions. I mean, really, pretty much. I mean, you can learn what they grew up eating. True. Where their family's from. True. So that tells you a lot. You can pretty quickly learn about their parents and you can learn about how they eat now, which is going to probably tell you something about where they live now and what they do and how much time they have, how much money they have. Right. You can tell if they grew up in a cooking household, because if they say, you know, like, the blue box mac and cheese, then you know they probably more or less a latchkey kid and probably fed themselves a good bit of the time. Right. You can tell that. You can tell what cultures they were raised with and with an understanding of. You can hear about their extended family and what they do for a living because they're like your job is going to inform what and how you eat. How many hours do you spend working? How much time do you have? Right. Do you go out to eat at nice restaurants all the time or do you more cook at home? And then like the actual way that you eat your food, that gets into more of your idiosyncrasies. Like, are you the kind of person that likes all the things kept separate on the plate? Do you like to mix it all together with a spoon? <laughs> I love those questions. Are, are you very messy? Or are you very neat? Do you like spicy or not spicy? All these things tell you a little bit about a person's life experience. I'm going to guess you're a guy who likes your plate neat and... I'm going to say you're moderately spicy. Those are good guesses. I'm at least moderate spicy. I'm, you know, when you reach the level of OCD food obsession that I have gotten to, Marty, you kind of transcend any one category. Okay. And it becomes like, what's the specific situation that we're in right now? So there's certain times where I'm like, oh, there's leftover Israeli couscous and there's leftover soup. I'm going to dump the Israeli couscous into the soup because now it's a meal. Now I threw carbs into the carrot soup. Now it's lunch. That's a different category, though. Leftovers don't count. Okay, that's right. that's fair right. game for everything. Leftovers can go like <laughs> always. Now, I don't really like, I don't mind if my food touches, but I don't really like to mix it, but I'm not so bad that I have to eat them one at a time. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I would de I'd never eat one at a time because it's like chefs talk about palate fatigue. Right. You know, you keep eating the same food over and over again, at least for me, like I'm, I'm going to get tired of it, whereas a couple bites of one thing, move on, you know, circle back around, and then each, each bite is new again. All right. So this show is a show about the backstories of recipes, and it is sort of based on author Pat Conroy's quote that a recipe is a story that ends with a good meal. So I love that one of the things that you do, you do these deep dives on regional dishes too. You go and explore and you find these crazy weird things that people who don't live there 
have never heard of, but the people who live there will fight about them. Yeah. So I want you to tell me about that New Jersey sandwich. Oh, yeah. Well, that, please. Yeah. I mean, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. And although my family's Jewish, we always ate pork growing up. And, you know, New Jersey is a funny place because most of the people who live in New Jersey are either in the New York suburbs or the Philly suburbs. Okay. And so New Jersey is a place that struggles to have an identity of its own, as distinguished from New York and Philadelphia. We don't have many of our own sports teams. What many people call the New Jersey accent is actually just a New York accent or a Philly accent. There is a New Jersey accent, but it's, you know, you really got to know how to pick it out. And it's only in a couple of counties. Okay. So the food we're talking about here is some people call it pork rolls. Some people call it Taylor ham. But that is the food that is really like one of the very few things that is uniquely New Jersey. It is made in New Jersey. It was invented in New Jersey. The first one was invented by a guy named Taylor back in the, I think the late 1800s, and he invented Taylor ham. And then this guy named George Washington Case came along, created a competing product, Case's Pork Roll. And Taylor ham kind of more dominates the northern half of the state. Pork roll dominates the southern half of the state. And it's essentially like an encased meat. You get a long, thick, log of it you slice like you would bologna or salami like a hot dog sort of sounding thing yeah but much bigger i mean like it's more like a sandwich meat okay so like when you slice a slice you get a circle that's like the size of a piece of white bread okay so bologna size yes that's right but it's saltier smokier it's got sugar it's got a ton of flavor when when you throw it on a griddle the edges curl up and get all crispy and caramelized and the classic way to have it in new jersey is to eat a pork roll or Taylor ham egg and cheese sandwich. And you get you know, the saltiness. It's kind of like... It's a breakfast food? Uh, it's probably mostly either breakfast or late night. Okay. But in the same way that bacon, egg, and cheese is so good, you know, you get that same smoky saltiness from Taylor ham that goes into the egg and cheese, but then you also get the sweetness, the caramelization, you get a meatiness. You know, you're really sticking your teeth into this piece of meat as opposed to bacon that kind of can be a lot of flavor, not much meat. The Taylor ham, oh, like, you know it's there. And there's just nothing quite like it. Oh, it's so good. Really? So it's that distinctive? Oh, yeah. You're not going to mistake Taylor ham. Now, which one are you? I'm from northern New Jersey, so I call it Taylor ham. You call it Taylor ham. And it's a fight over what you even call it. That's right. New Jerseyans can't agree on what to call it. And in typical New Jersey fashion, even this small group of people can't agree on what to call it or even which one is better. It's from Trenton. The capital of New Jersey is where they're made now. And there's two competing Trenton pork roll festivals. There was one, but then the two guys had a fight and a falling out. So now every year Memorial Day weekend, during normal times at least, they have these two competing festivals, like down the street from each other, uh, which is kind of hilarious and perfect. On you're eating it wrong, it must have stirred up a lot of passionate discussion like this about what's right, what's not right. What's the most controversial episode? I would say my idea that you should fold a slice of pizza inside out. Inside out. And this goes to my idea, cheese on the bottom, cheese side down, really any kind of layered wait, food wait, wait. you want to think about. Say that again. Yes. What now? So in any kind of layered food, you want to think about what is the order of the layers as they hit your tongue? Because whatever is on the bottom layers, I think it's going to land on your tongue. That flavor will be accentuated. That's why, for instance, I would say you should eat a cheeseburger with the cheese side down. When you're eating a salad, you want to fork around the salad and build a bite on the fork 
ending with the thing you like the best so that that's on the tip of the fork. It lands on your tongue and that flavor is accentuated. Same thing for a slice of pizza. You fold it inside out, the cheese and the sauce land on your tongue. You taste it more. It also really changes the whole texture of the slice. Now, I'm going to anticipate the first objection right now. People say, but what about the toppings? What about the toppings? Now, first of all, I think if you're eating a good pizza, you don't need a ton of toppings. Well, I don't agree with that. Right. Too many toppings release too much liquid. Vegetables release water. Meat releases fat. You put a bunch of that stuff on a pizza, they release all this liquid. Your crust is going to turn to mush. Spiky. Just get good pizza. Don't top it with so much stuff. So you're saying if my pizza slice, my little triangle, I'm going to take the topping and fold it down as opposed to doing what most people do, especially New Yorkers, and fold it up. That's right. Uh, That's right. And look, so in general, your pizza, I think, shouldn't have a ton of toppings. It is true that some pizzas with toppings, this isn't going to work. But if you're eating a cheese pizza or pizza with minimal toppings, it works very well. Sometimes I eat it this way. Sometimes I eat it the regular way. The point isn't so much that there's an objectively right or wrong way. The point that I like to take away from this is that such a simple change in the way that you eat a food can make a huge difference in the eating experience. So on that particular episode where you were talking about folding your pizza backwards, did people just have a come undone? Well, so in that episode, I'm basically pitching this technique to Patsy Grimaldi, who is an 80-something-year-old New York pizza legend. At this point, he may be the last person in America still making pizza today who trained under someone who trained under Lombardi. Lombardi, in 1903, got the first license to operate a pizzeria in America. And he had a bunch of guys who worked in his restaurant who went out and opened up a bunch of other pizzerias in the 30s and 40s. And then they had their disciples. And Patsy Grimaldi's uncle was one of Lombardi's disciples. So here I am with this really old guy who's been making pizza for close to 100 years. And I'm like telling him that I think you should fold it this way. And he is just not having it. (laughs) He is just like, I'm like, what do you think of this, Patsy? No. Nope. Nope. Don't like it. Don't like it one bit. We're not stopping here. (laughs) Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to keep this conversation with Dan Pashma going right after the break. You're listening to Homemade. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm Marty Duncan, and my guest today is Dan Pashman, host of the Sportful Podcast. Who was the most surprising guest you've ever had? You've interviewed everybody, so who surprised you the most? Maybe I would say Jamie Oliver. Oh, really? You know, people like him who are such great communicators— To have this gift to be able to just go on TV and just connect with other people, which is not something that comes naturally to me. You know, it turns out that you can talk about really big, important, deep issues. And like just those kinds of people just have this intuitive understanding of people. They just get people. They understand people. They know how to connect with people. We started talking about like food policy, which he's very passionate about, like healthy meals for kids and all that. 
But he's not just like some spokesman guy who like tweets or Instagrams some slogans. He's like meeting with the prime minister and all this stuff and, and uh, lobbying for legislation. Right. Just his insights on why some things happen, why some things don't happen, why political food issues play out the way they do. Like he just has a, such a deep, keen understanding of people and their motivations. And that was a great conversation. So he really surprised you in that he's not just a celebrity chef. He is an actual person who gets things done in a big, huge policy making sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I assumed he was smart because I don't think you get to be that successful running restaurants and shows without being a bright person. But just the details that he knows about and had at his fingertips and just kind of like his keen understanding of people. So who was the most fun person you've ever interviewed. We did one a couple months ago with Samantha Irby. She's a writer, an essayist, not a food person. She's really just a writer, a fantastic writer, hilarious, but she loves food. She writes a lot about food and eating, and she's just super funny and just like the kind of person who you could tell is like fun to eat with. You know, she was saying that like when she first met her wife on their first date, her wife like housed this whole plate of enchiladas. And she was just like, I'm sticking with it with you. you know? <laughs> like She's like, I can't hang out with people who don't enjoy a meal. So she was a ton of fun, someone I'd love to hang out with. What is the number one request that you get when daddy's cooking for the kids? I mean, it, it doesn't matter who's cooking. The number one request is pasta, uh, mac and cheese. You know, it's funny the things that become our signature dishes. A couple of years ago, we were having a bunch of family over. I don't remember what the occasion was, but it was like a Saturday afternoon kind of get together. My wife and I didn't want to serve a big sit down meal, but we also didn't want to order out. We wanted to cook for our family. And I said, why don't I just make a big baked ziti? It's pretty easy to make. You can make a huge tray of it. Right. You know, it'll be good. And I can make it in advance. So I'm not in the kitchen where we can be with our family. I mean, I'm happy to eat baked ziti. I don't love baked ziti. It was more just like a, a practical... Easy thing to do, yeah. Right. An easy way to throw together a big hunk of food in advance for a lot of people. And I did it, and it was a huge hit, and everyone's going crazy, and the kids loved it. And now it's become my thing. And it's funny because I still don't love it. I'm happy to eat it, but like I don't look forward to it. But like my kids want it at their birthday parties. I made a baked ziti for my daughter's friend's birthday party. It's still a little bit involved to make the filling, the ricotta and all this, and then layer it and assemble all the components. Will you walk us through that, Dan? Sure. So the real key... First of all, I use rigatoni. I don't use ziti because you got to have ridges on the outside and there's a nice big hollow center to get stuff inside. Just make rigatoni, like two pounds of it, and then mix it with a bunch of tomato sauce, whatever good tomato sauce you like. It can be from a jar. It's fine. The key is then you make your filling, and that is a bunch of ricotta cheese. But ricotta is kind of creamy, but it doesn't have a lot of flavor. So you got to put pesto in. Add pesto to the ricotta, oh, and then you oh, add a, a lot of grated Parmesan. And even probably some salt and pepper, a little bit of shredded mozzarella, mix it around and just keep tasting. Taste it until it's salty and cheesy and just full of flavor. You do a bunch of herbs in there too? Not you. I mean, usually the pesto takes care of that. Okay. And the pesto, you can buy a jar of it in the supermarket. You throw it in. It's it's so easy. That's a great idea. And the key is you need that filling to taste good on its own. And then usually what I'll do is I'll take mushrooms and spinach, saute them separately, drain them. And then when I make the baked ziti, I put down one layer of rigatoni and sauce, one layer of the cheese ricotta cheese filling, and then I put a nice thick layer of vegetables on half, which is like the grown-up's half, to make it a little healthier, add a little more going on. Another layer of the pasta with the sauce, 
and then another layer of the ricotta cheese filling and then shredded mozzarella on top. And it's really good. And, and no meat. No, I do no meat. Vegetarian. Yeah, yeah. Sounds delicious. You know, my, my wife grew up in a kosher home. And if you're kosher, you don't mix meat and dairy. Okay. We don't follow those rules quite as strictly in our house today, but typically like we wouldn't make something that was like chock full of cheese like this that would also have meat. So yeah, so it's all vegetarian, lots of cheese. The kids love it because the kids kept asking for it, but it's a bit involved, like all these different components in separate pots that you then have to bring together. I invented something called Speedy ZD. Okay. I really want to know about Speedy ZD. Make your pasta, drain it, throw it back in the pot, throw in the sauce, Throw in the ricotta and the pesto and the parmesan all in one. Mix it all up. So you kind of get a sauce that almost has the texture of like a, a penne, like a vodka sauce. You know, the ricotta kind of becomes part of the Creamy, sauce. yes. Right. So you're losing your layers. But you, then you like throw everything into one pot and then you just dump that in. And then you just sprinkle mozzarella cheese on top, run the heat with the lid on for a minute, and then the cheese melts and you serve it right out of the pot. That's a great idea for fast weeknight dinner. Yes, and then it's one pot. You're not mixing a bunch of stuff. I call that speedy ziti. Well, you don't have to worry with the layering and everything. And besides, when you spoon it out into your plate or your bowl, it all kind of mushes together anyway. So. It's true. It kind of makes you wonder why I do it the long way at all. And I always have a fun moment with my kids because once that cheese filling with the pesto and the Parmesan is, is ready... I call them in and I say, I need you to taste test. And they taste it. And they always say it needs more cheese. <laughs> oh, always. So I, I, then I sprinkle in more Parmesan cheese. But it's fun for them because then they feel like they're the ones who are controlling the recipe and telling me when it's done. Well, and so. it's engaging them in the cooking process. And I find that when you get kids involved in the cooking process, or especially in the growing process, if you can get them in the garden growing vegetables and things, typically they'll eat it. What do the girls like to make? Your daughters. They love mixing, measuring, baking, really. Baking. I mean, baking is great for kids because they're nine and seven now. They're pretty good over a hot pan. They can stir stuff, but still, there's a little more technique in that. I worry about, like, oil splattering right. on them or something. Whereas, like, you know, baking is very easy, and they can taste the batter, and it's, it's fun. And I once heard you talk about your mom baking, and you said she had a thumbprint cookie that was a holiday favorite for you. Yes. Is that one of your best holiday memories? Oh, for sure, yeah. I know, cook, making that dough with my mom and... And we roll it into small balls, maybe about the diameter of a quarter, and put them all out. And then she has a clothespin. She makes she actually makes the thumbprints using a clothespin that has like a knob on the top. It's like an old-fashioned... Old it's, it's not one of those clothespins that has the spring. It's her grandmother's, my great-grandmother's clothespin. Oh, my. Before they had the, the metal spring on them, they were just kind of like a yeah. clip. It was like, a, you know, and it has it had sort of like a little, almost looks like a, a, a hair bun on the top of it, you know, that little like round ball that would go on the top of the clothespin and you press that down and you make the, then you bake them and then you put a little raspberry jam in. And what holiday do you have these for? Usually Thanksgiving. Yeah. Is that your big family holiday? I know everybody's is different. Uh, yeah. Thanksgiving definitely probably is my favorite because we're Jewish. Passover and Rosh Hashanah are big family holidays. Even though we don't really celebrate Christmas, I still love Christmas. And I mean, on top of sort of, you know, the Christmas season and the spirit and all that, there's something nice about having this day that's like a holiday that you can celebrate however you want because it's not really your holiday. So every year we kind of do something special on Christmas. Every year, Christmas Day, we drive into New York City and we volunteer. We deliver meals uh, with our kids. That's a great family tradition. I love that. Yeah. I'm glad we do that. So we, we like we go to a shelter, we help package the meals, and then we deliver them to seniors around New York who don't who can't cook for themselves on Christmas. The kids sing Christmas carols and stuff, and that's fun. I love that. 
Oh. Yeah. So that's really nice. All right. I have two words to say to you now that we're talking about the holidays. Yes. Eggnog. Oh. Yes. Every year around Christmas or New Year's, I make one batch of homemade eggnog. I use the joy of cooking recipe, although I'm sure there's also great recipes on all recipes. You know, there's more than one way to make an eggnog. But you, like I grew up drinking eggnog out of the carton. I had never had real homemade eggnog until a coworker of mine brought it in once around Christmas. And then I was like, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. So tell me, you make it. So can you walk me through how you do it? It's really pretty straightforward. You're basically like making a cake, but without instead of flour, you put in liquor <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you drink the cake. <laughs> Don't make it. Just drink it. Right. Yeah. It's like a dozen eggs, a pound of sugar, a gallon or half gallon of heavy cream and like a bottle of liquor. And you just mix them together in the right order. And you end up with this absolutely magical concoction. Definitely let it sit in the fridge overnight after you mix it all together. It's got to kind of come together and get real chilled. Right. So you separate the eggs. Yeah, right. Separate the eggs. You make the drink only with the egg yolks. You keep the whites separate. And then when I go to serve it, I whip the whites into right. sort of a meringue. And then I kind of fold that in. So you get the frothy egg whites on the top and, the and you light, get the creamy. Yeah, it becomes lighter that way. Now, do oh you are you a rum guy or a bourbon or a whiskey or a brandy? Which do you prefer? All of the above? <laughs> yeah, it's sort of whatever I have. Right. That part varies a bit from one year to the next. I mean, I, definitely rum. I think I always want rum in there. I like to mix two, but it's, I guess probably most often I would say rum and bourbon. Yeah, bourbon for me too. Yeah, but sometimes if I got brandy around and I feel like emptying that bottle, then that's what we'll do. Right. Brandy is very, very good. Sometimes I'll put a little bit of Gramignet in with that yeah, yeah, and a yeah. bit of orange zest, and that's pretty good. They do some with booze, some without booze. Right. And there's always a lot left without booze. There's never any left with booze. <laughs> oh, I think eggnog is just the, one of the magical Christmas things. Christmas cookies and eggnog to me, that just makes the holidays. All right. So how about some tips for our listeners who may have holiday anxiety because I listened to you on one of your podcasts say that you get a bit of anxiety when you're hosting the, the big dinner. Yeah, this is sort of a, it's a continuing struggle for me. First of all, I think if you're hosting even 10, but let's say 15 or 20 people, that's always going to be a little stressful. Oh, yes. You know, so it's okay for that to be a little stressful. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. But you do want to kind of like manage that so that you get enjoyment out of the day. So to me, it's sort of like cooking as much as you can in advance, being prepared, not biting off more than you can chew. It always comes where it's like the day before, the morning of, and I'm like, what if we were to also make this one more thing? Oh, I know I do that too. And then I have to, you know, don't do it. Just stop. If you have extra time, you know what? Pour yourself an eggnog and sit down. Yeah. Don't decide to add to the menu at the last minute. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, have a drink, relax, and also just remember, I keep reminding myself, like I think about my kids and the kind of memories they'll have from holidays, and I want them to have happy memories from the holidays. And if I'm happy and having a nice time, like what they'll remember is that we're having a good time together, the family being together. Yes, of course, the food matters. But like if the food's great, but I'm miserable because I'm freaking out, then that's not a good holiday. Now, what dish has to be on your holiday table or it's not the holidays? I mean, it depends on the holiday. If it's Thanksgiving, then obviously turkey and then stuffing and mashed potatoes. Yeah. Stuffing to me, like that's where my focus is at Thanksgiving. Well, I read where you said one of your hacks is to make the stuffing outside the bird. 
You know what they call that, right? That's dressing. I know. Yes, that's I know. That's not something. Uh, <laughs> that's dressing. But what do you call it, Marty? See, I stuff the bird and also make extra stuffing outside the bird. Because so, I, I do like the stuffing from inside, but I don't think you can get enough stuffing just inside. So I do both and then mix them together. So what do you call that? Dress stuffing? <laughs> like turducken? I Dressed don't know. Up stuffing? Yeah, Duff struffing. I don't know. Something like that. We'll have to come up with that. Yeah. Yeah. We don't do right. that. We do dressing. That's how, you know, you said earlier, you can tell how people are where they're from and what they're all about right. by what they eat. We eat yep. dressing. And right. if you eat stuffing, you from somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favorite kind of stuffing? How do you make yours? I, I make it the way my mom made it. You know, it's pretty straightforward. It's breadcrumbs. Usually we use the Pepperidge Farm mix. Sometimes I'll get fancy and buy some larger croutons, two different size uh, breadcrumbs, okay. mushrooms and onions, cook them in advance and drain them so you don't get too much water, mix them in, and then it's just like butter, pan juices, all that stuff, mix them together. Try to cook it at a high heat so you get crusty bits. Ooh, the crusty bits are the best. Yeah, you got to have crusty bits. We're all in it for the crusty bits. I think everybody's into the crusty bits and yeah. fight for that. Like, I want the corner. Yep. But then you want to put gravy on the crusty bits. Isn't that funny? Yes, but they still, if, you, if you're putting the gravy on and eating it right away, you'll maintain the crust. <laughs> all right, so it's fall, and I uh, want to know about your favorite fall flavors. What do you look forward to? I mean, I love pecan pie. Me too. Is it chess pie fall or is that all year round? I think chess pie can be fall. I think pie season is the fall to me. That really is, although we have cobblers and everything all summer long with fruits, but I think to me, when the holidays come around, especially Thanksgiving, to me, that's pie season. Yeah, I think that's right for me. Yeah. And then, you know, usually I make my switch from clear liquors to brown liquors as the weather gets colder. So warm weather is like tequila, vodka, and gin, mostly tequila. Cold weather is like bourbon, whiskey, brandy, those things. Now, how do you take your bourbon? Depends on my mood. I've lately been really enjoying old fashions. I do as well. I love an old fashioned. Sometimes in the summer, though, if I'm in a bourbon craving, I'll do a bourbon with just a little bit of ice and water, a little splash of cold water. I love that. I do like to have a little orange slice in, you know, like a little peel, a uh, piece of zest or something in my bourbon with a ice cube. I kind of like that, or an orange wheel. Do you get invited over for dinner, or are people intimidated to cook for you? Yes. You get invited? <laughs> the answer to both questions is yes. Okay. Yes, people invite me over to dinner. I think sometimes they get intimidated until they get to know me, and they realize that I'll actually eat anything. I know, me too. I just want to say, listen, I love the fact you'll cook for me. I don't care if we'll have a bowl of cereal. Right. You're cooking it. You're cleaning it up. I'm happy exactly. to you know, just hang out yeah. and somebody else to do the cooking for a minute. What's your current food or condiment obsession? I would say um, Coleman's English mustard. Ooh, I love it. I had Nigella Lawson on a couple years ago, and she called it the British wasabi, which is a great description. It's got a sort of horseradish, back of the throat burn to it. But it's got flour in it, so it has a little bit of texture to it, like a hoisan sauce or gochujang. And I love that texture. Any sauce that's got that kind of floury texture, I'm all for it. And just that with any kind of fatty meat on a burger, meatloaf. Like, I had kind of burnt out on meatloaf after my kids have been eating it for so long. I couldn't eat any more meatloaf. And then the Coleman's English mustard reinvigorated it for me. I'm going to give you a tip on a favorite condiment. 
Please. If you can find it. Wickles Pickles. Oh, okay. They're hard to find up your way. But if you find them, they're made down here in Alabama, and they are the best. They're spicy and wickedly pickled, and they're just good. And I use that pickle juice for a lot of things. Like, I use it to brine pork sometimes, or sometimes I'll use it in a dressing. And, you know, they say pickle juice is a great chaser for a shot of whiskey. Yes, I've heard that. Pickleback, they call that, right? Yeah, pickleback. That's right. We did a lot of picklebacks on Food Network Star. (laughs) Maybe a few too many. (laughs) Well, listen, Dan, passionate cook and eater and dad and husband. It's been such a joy getting to know you a little bit better. I'm wishing you a very happy holiday season. Thanks for sharing some of your secrets and your tips and your recipes and stories with us today here on Homemade. Thanks, Marty. You too. Dan Pashman is the host of The Sportful Podcast, which you can find on any podcast app and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. He's also online at sportful.com. Next week on the show, I'm sitting down with award-winning chef, restaurateur, TV star, cookbook author, and philanthropist, Marcus Samuelson. You have 5 million American kids that goes to bed every day with food insecurities. So when you think about haves and haves not, food insecurities for kids is really something that we have to do a better job at. But everybody can do something, and that's the key, right? If you are a grower and you bring in kids once a week to show them how to grow vegetables, for example, something that happened during the pandemic in my neighborhood was that all the parents got together and said, hey, how do we create some sense of normalcy for our kids? And every parents are working with something so everybody can contribute. So it was my wife and I, we cooked. We did coasted cooking classes, for example. So there is a way for communities collectively to come together. Make sure you join us. He's one of my favorites. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Homemade so you don't miss it. And don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.